Good morning, everyone. This morning's Bible reading comes from Hebrews chapter 3, from verses 1 through to chapter 4, verses 13. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. 
Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today. Saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andrew, for reading for us, and a very special welcome to everyone this morning. It's great to see a full house again today. Uh, If you're visiting, very special welcome to you. My name's Clint. I'll be bringing the message this morning, and it'll be very helpful if you had a Bible open with you so you can follow along. I know it's a long section, um, and for this reason, let me give props to paper Bibles, because I can see the whole passage in front of me here, which is very helpful for a big passage like this. Might struggle on a phone or or a tablet. Your choice entirely, though. Let's pray. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help as we try and understand it, and then let's go. Our Lord and our God, we pray today that you would soften our hearts and open our ears, that your word may do its work in us to help us to know and love and imitate Jesus more. As we pray in his name, amen. Well, you might be here on holiday with us. We know at the moment there are record numbers of holiday makers visiting the Sunshine Coast. Um, and with that has brought some challenges. I understand this week there's been some challenges down in Caloundra at Happy Valley where, uh, as you might know, the Bribey Island has broken through because of various water currents and things and has opened up a new beach, which is an incredibly dangerous beach to swim at, but people are persisting at swimming there anyway. Apparently people are choosing to swim in a part of the beach that's unpatrolled. It's full of very visible, very sharp rocks covered in oyster shells. Uh, it's full of stonefish as well. And despite red flags and signs on the beach and repeated warnings from surf lifesavers, people are still swimming there. Surf lifesavers are at their wit's end. They're having to deal with constant injuries and at least one stonefish sting every weekend, apparently. So lifesavers have said, we put up a red flag with a big sign underneath that said, danger, no swimming. It made absolutely no difference. We're doing patrols in the boat with a megaphone to warn people. We really didn't know what more we could do. Consider this a public service announcement as well. If you're down there, don't swim there. (laughs) Swim between the flags. But at the end of the day, of course, the problem is not the message, is it? The problem is people's willingness to hear the message and respond properly to it. And that's exactly the point of the passage in front of us today. Now, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, we're kind of punching in at a point in the message and punching out at another point. The whole book is not really a letter as it's often called, it's really a sermon. 
It's actually a sermon written down and placed in our Bibles with the other New Testament letters. So you're getting great value this morning. You're getting a sermon on a sermon, or at least a sermon on a part of a sermon. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. We don't know who they wrote it to necessarily. But one thing we know for sure, that it's written and spoken to people who are facing a critical danger. And it seems that the people who were meant to hear it were people who had a Jewish background before they became Christians. And they were in danger of giving up on Jesus and returning to their old familiar Jewish Old Testament religion. And the preacher's point in Hebrews is very simple, that everything in the Old Testament is just a sign that's pointing to Jesus. It's not the destination. So you simply cannot use Jesus. You must give your whole self over to him. And that's essentially what the book of Hebrews is about. Now, we're popping into the sermon at one point in chapter 3. It'd be great if you had a Bible open with you at that passage, and you can follow along with us uh, in the outline in the order of service. Now, what we've read this morning is actually part of a theme that the preacher's been developing since the beginning of chapter 1. Right at the beginning of chapter 1, in the first verses, he's reminded us that Jesus is at the very apex of everything God has been working towards right through the Old Testament. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, turn back a page to chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll see these words. This is how he begins. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the worlds. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's how he begins. He wants us to see that Jesus is at the very pinnacle of everything God is working towards. And then he goes on to show how Jesus outshines all of God's former servants because of who he is. He's God's image. He's God's son. And also because of what he has done. He's perfectly paid for the sins of God's people and truly sanctified them or made them perfect. And this makes him better than any of God's heavenly servants, like the angels that we read about in chapter 1 and better than any earthly servant. So he's better than the prophets in chapter 1, verse 1. He's better than Moses in chapter 3, verse 2 to 5. He's better than Joshua that we read about this morning. He's better than any high priest in Israel's long history. And so at the beginning of chapter 3, we're called simply to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Right? So... In other words, because God has finally and decisively spoken to us in Jesus, we must look to Jesus as the genuine article. Because he is. He is completely trustworthy. I wonder if you've ever tried to get into a boat from a jetty. And you'll know that it's really hard to kind of keep one foot on the jetty, one foot in the boat, while the boat's slowly moving away from the jetty. If you try and do that, if you try and keep one foot on the jetty and one foot in the boat while the boat's getting underway, there's only one place you're going to end up, right? You're going to end up in the water. You've got to know that you can put both feet safely in the boat 
that you can trust the boat, right? Well, it's the same with Jesus. You can trust Jesus and have full confidence in him to put your whole self in him. There's no one foot in Jesus and one foot elsewhere. There's no using Jesus. It's all or nothing. So 3 verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold our confidence and our boasting in hope. In other words, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, we can trust him with, our, with confident hope that he will certainly save us and he will certainly bring us to glory. So far, so good, right? Well, our preacher is a realist. He knows how human beings think. He knows how we behave. He knows knows there's a critical danger to avoid here. And it's critical because our ultimate salvation depends on it. So this is our second heading, a lesson from history. So let me play you an old song, says the preacher. It's about something that happened a long time ago in the history of God's people. It's around the time of the exodus from Egypt. And it's seen through the eyes of King David, who wrote the song about 500 years after the events it describes. So verse 7 to 11 of our passage actually come from verse 7 to 11 of Psalm 95, an Old Testament song that was written by King David. And the first half of the song, if you read it, is a song of praise to God. The second half of the song is a warning about what happened back in the desert. What's the point? Well, the song is meant to be a poetic reminder that the worship of God can't be separated from faith in God. So be careful that your words match what's going on in your heart in your relationship with God. That's the point of Psalm 95. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews or the preacher, he brings these verses out of Psalm 95 into his argument this morning. Because you see, after God brought his people Israel out of Egypt, he met with them at Mount Sinai, he revealed his law and promises to them, then he led them on a relatively short journey, about three months, to the edge of the promised land, the land he'd promised to Abraham many, many generations before. And so freed from slavery, rest in the promised land was in sight, it was a river crossing away, all they had to do was go in and take it. But what happened? Well, God's people flinched. And like the moon's shadow covering the light of the midday sun, they allowed their faith in God to be eclipsed by their fear of people. They hardened their hearts to God's promises, and they rebelled. And in response, the Lord turned them around. He led them back into the wilderness, and he kept them wandering there for 40 years. He was faithful to them, but he decided that their punishment would be to not enter the promised land. Their children would go in and God would keep his promises, but not them. They were excluded because they disobeyed. Because they heard God's voice, but they hardened their hearts to it. Now, it's, it's worth remembering, these are the same people who saw the ten plagues in Egypt not that long ago. These are the same people who walked through the Red Sea on dry land and saw Pharaoh's army drowned and destroyed behind them. These are the same people who were at Mount Sinai, who heard the voice of God, who felt the earthquake, who saw the thunder and lightning and heard God's words mediated through Moses. They had seen surprising victories against powerful enemy kingdoms 
that they encountered along the way. And they stood on the edge of the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham. They touched the dirt. They'd even heard the reports of the spies and seen the rich fruit samples they brought back. But when it came time to take God at his word, to go in and take the land, they hardened their hearts and would not believe that God's words could be trusted or should be acted on. They disbelieved and disobeyed They rebelled, and they suffered the consequences. Now, when David wrote Psalm 95, he recognized that the danger of hard-hearted unbelief was as real in the time of the Exodus as it was in his own time. The writer to the Hebrews, when he wrote his sermon, he realized that in the first century... The danger of hard-heartedness was as real for him as it was for David, as it was in the time of Moses. It's no wonder then he keeps repeating the first words of the psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And of course, what was true for God's people in the time of Moses, David, the early church, must surely be true for us today. But today of verse 7, verse 13, verse 15, and 4, verse 7 must also be the 8th of January, 2023. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through through David so long after, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Well, the problem that the preacher in Hebrews wants to highlight from this history lesson essentially is that hard-heartedness is terminal. It's fatal. It's deadly. The lesson he's shown them from the history of God's own people is that hard, rebellious, evil, straying, unbelieving hearts, hearts which fail to actually hear and respond in faith to what God is saying, well, there's only one outcome for that, missing out on the ultimate rest that God has promised his people. So look with me at, four verse, at 3 verse 12. And as I read it, let yourself feel the force behind the warning. He says there, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. A good reminder there, he's not preaching a a message to non-believers who still have to come to the gospel. He's talking to Christians, his own brothers and sisters. Now, Christians have often read the book of Hebrews and been troubled by an important question. The question is, can a person who's once been saved by Jesus ever lose their salvation? It's an important question. If Jesus has saved me, can I forfeit through my own sin or faithlessness my eternal forgiveness and my place in heaven? Well, now, I firmly believe the Bible answers no to that question. God shows us in his word that our salvation in Jesus is so great and we are so powerless and lost in sin that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves and nothing we can do to override Christ's saving of us. We simply don't have that kind of power. And I certainly believe the preacher to the Hebrews believed the same as we go through the letter. 
So why does he seem to suggest that it's possible to lose our salvation through unbelief and disobedience after coming to Christ? Well, think about it like this. If you were a parent and a child that you love, your child, was playing near the edge of a cliff and you knew there was a 30-foot drop on the other side of that cliff, what would you be saying to them? Now, my guess is you probably wouldn't be explaining to them the mathematical probability of them falling off the edge of the cliff down to three decimal points. You probably wouldn't be lecturing them about Isaac Newton's laws of motion and gravitation, which may or may not impact subsequent events should they occur. You'd be shouting at them, get away from the edge. And this is exactly what our preacher is doing. He's adopting the cautious approach of, if it looks dangerous, it probably is. And hard-hearted unbelief has an historical track record of leading people, even people who are associated with God's covenant community, of leading them to fall away from the living God and miss out on his promised rest. You see, to the preacher, the very worst thing a Christian can do is take Jesus for granted. And the danger's real, even for Christians today. Where does this hardness to God's words come from? Well, we're told in verse 13. He says there, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. It lies to us. It's a familiar voice, isn't it? It's the same voice that whispered to Eve in the garden. Did God really say? It's also the voice that suggests that God is keeping his best from us. That God isn't as great as he pretends to be. And therefore, his word is optional. We can judge for ourselves whether we ignore it or keep it. It's the voice that tells us, you you deserve this sin, this little sin. It's not hurting anyone. No one will ever know. It's also the voice that tells us, look what a great Christian you are. Everything you do is so godly, so righteous. You're in church every Sunday. You give, you serve, you're charitable, you're hospitable, you're generous. You've got the answers, haven't you? People wish they were as spiritual as you. You've got nothing to worry about. It's also the lie of, ah, this is a word for that person over there. It's not for you. But you know, the more we listen to these words of Satan, the lies of sin, the more our hearts become hardened to the word of God. The heart loses any softness, any tenderness, and by choice it becomes impenetrable to the word of God. The life-giving word, which if followed, leads to rest. Again, we've got to remember the the preacher's not talking to people who are struggling to grab hold of the gospel for the first time. He's talking to people who claim to be Christians, people who have been baptized, people who are part of the church, maybe those who serve in the church, his brothers and sisters in Christ, as he says. And he's trying to bring an urgent immediacy to their trust in Jesus. When the Protestant reformer Martin Luther nailed his 95 statements to the church door in 1517, 
Number one said this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of penitence. In other words, it's no good resting on a past commitment to Jesus and thinking we're okay if it makes no difference to our lives today. Of course, there'll be ups and downs. We're not in heaven yet. But is the trajectory upwards? And if the deceitfulness of sin is causing you to hard-heartedly ignore or reject God's word today, how do you know sin didn't fool you into falsely believing you had a place in God's kingdom back then? If you don't take God's word to you seriously today, how could you have taken it seriously back then? Realize this is, this is hard stuff, but it's crucial. This is why he says in verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. <clears throat> Friends, our trust in Jesus is a day-by-day thing. Remember the ones who fell in the desert, says the preacher, verse 16 to 19. To the outside observer, they looked every bit God's people. But inside, their hearts were hard. They didn't really believe God could be trusted, didn't really believe he should be obeyed, didn't really believe he could come through on his promises, and they lost out on God's promised rest. Verse 15, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. From here, our preacher now moves to talk about this rest, God's promised rest. And his point is basically that because of Jesus, the stakes are even higher than they were in the desert. Uh, American pastor Sam Storms helpfully points out there are five layers to the rest that's in view here in this passage. First of all is God's rest, when it says that God rested after creating the world, when everything was as it should be before sin entered the world, chapter 4, verse 4. Then kind of in the background, I guess, in this passage is the rest of the seven-day Sabbath cycle, that day every week which pointed back to God's rest and forward to a future rest. That's number two. Number three was the rest of the promised land, which is very much in view here, where God's people were given rest from their enemies to live as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Number four is the rest we enjoy in Christ, where we rest from trying to achieve righteousness through our works and instead rest in Jesus' sacrifice for us. That's chapter 4, verse 10. And finally, chapter 4, 11, and a few other places, the rest we will enjoy forever in heaven with God. So if you think of think back to the movie Shrek, ogres are like onions. I guess rest in the Bible is like an onion as well. It's full of layers. And here there are five. But the argument then in chapter 4 is basically this. If hard-hearted, unbelieving disobedience kept people from the promised land rest, people who left Egypt, led by Moses, who heard good, the good news of God's promises then how much more will hard-hearted, unbelieving disobedience keep those who claim to be Christians out of heaven? As Bible scholar Derek Kidner put it, the quitters who turned back to the wilderness 
so the psalm and the letter warn us, may be but pale shadows of ourselves if we draw back from our great inheritance. And remember, this is not can a Christian lose their salvation. This is get back from the edge. We need to take this seriously, friends. Verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have failed to reach it. And 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. See, hard-heartedness is terminal. Now, we've got to admit that after all this talk of entering God's rest, the image of God's word as a sharp sword kind of hacking away at us in chapter 4 doesn't sound all that restful, does it? Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We've got to remember that hearing God's word humbly, and eagerly, and obediently, and faithfully, will not be easy. Excuse me. Won't be easy, but it will be worth it. Now, there are a few different pictures here being mixed into one. One picture is of the Old Testament priest with his knife, kind of expertly butchering the animal ready for sacrifice. Kind of fits with the the bigger narrative of Hebrews. Another image is of a surgeon with his scalpel who knows exactly where to cut to remove the dead or diseased tissue. Final images of the judge who holds the power of the sword, who must discern guilt or innocence. And these images are kind of laid over one another to help us recognize what's going on, what's going to happen as we truly and faithfully and obediently and urgently listen to God's word. Because really, listening to God's word means expecting heart surgery. And friends, we need surgery. It's the attitude of the psalm writer David, again, when he prays a scary prayer. Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Excuse me. And the only way to do this safely... The only way to willingly submit to this kind of surgery is to go back to chapter 3, verse 1, to consider Jesus, to trust him now as always. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. As we move to a close, I know this rather long section of Hebrews, it's actually got a really short and simple point. What will you do with what God is saying to you today in his word? What is he saying to you today in Christ? What sin is he telling you to cut out today? What idea is he trying to correct you on today? Where is he offering you something better today than the thing you cling to so tightly? What encouragement is he giving you today to trust his love, his forgiveness, his faithfulness in Jesus to you today? 
What are you going to do with God's word today? If you harden your heart today, who's to say it won't always be hardened? Who's to say it hasn't always been hardened? But if you hear God's voice in Jesus today and respond to it today, surely that is evidence that the Lord Jesus is in you and you're in him and that you're destined to enjoy his rest forever in heaven. Not so? But if we, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. We pray today that now and always that your living and active word would do its work in our hearts. By your Holy Spirit, please let your word pierce us deeply every day to cut out whatever may keep us from hearing your voice, whatever may keep us from enjoying your rest in the Lord Jesus Christ now and forever. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to move to the